Welcome to You Are Here, the podcast where we have conversations with people who have courageously taken the road less traveled. I'm your host, Rachel Ree, and in each episode, we'll be exploring stories from people who have followed their own path and are living life on their own terms. Know that we're here to meet you where you are and where you'd like to be. This is You Are Here. Happy New Year, friend. On my end, it was so nice to disconnect from work and just have so much focus time to spend with family. At the end of the year, I also did some goal setting. And one of the areas of focus for me that I identified is really to just be more health conscious, as I'm sure so many of you also have some health goals on your radar. I am generally someone who takes care of my health, especially given my health history. However, I just want to be more intentional about this. And for me, this includes regular movement, taking my supplements, and really just keeping better track of all my doctor's visits and lab work so that I can have a truly preventative and proactive approach to my health. At the end of last year, I was introduced to Almond, which is an OBGYN women's healthcare company based in Los Angeles. They take a functional medicine approach to your health, and if you know me at all, you know I love a holistic approach to well-being and really looking at your body and health in a 360 view. So I'm really excited to have the founder of Almond on today for my first guest of the year. Tara Rafi is on a mission to make it easy for the 130 million American women to get great OBGYN care that helps them feel seen and be seen with ease. She has a background in management consulting, yet decided to embark on this path that was just more aligned to a need that she saw personally, and she also saw that it was just missing in the overall landscape of women's healthcare. Whether you are someone who wants to create and found your own company, wants to raise capital for your startup, or you are someone who just wants to prioritize your health, I hope you find some valuable insights in today's episode. If so, remember to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know that you have a background in management consulting and you came from McKinsey, I believe. So I'd love to start from that aspect of your journey of what led you into consulting and going that route, and then we can go from there. Well, thanks for having me and really excited to chat. What led me to consulting was actually in college, I was a pre-med major for a bit and was really interested in healthcare. And a lot of people in my family are doctors. And I thought that that's kind of what I wanted to do. And it felt really narrowed to me. And so what led me to consulting was just this desire to learn, to see a lot of different things that I didn't have exposure to and be really challenged and not to commit. And that ended up being such a great decision. And how long were you in it for? So I started McKinsey as a business analyst. I did two years in that role, which is a standard. And then I left and went to go work at a early stage tech company. And then I went, came back to McKinsey for another three years to lead our internal tech fund and incubator. So in total, I was there for five years. Yeah, I think that happens a lot, actually. I hear that a lot happening where people boomerang back into consulting. So what led you back to that path? I swore I was never going to go back, which also happens a lot to people who go back to consulting. So my first role, why I left was I loved McKinsey. It was such a fun job as a 22-year-old. I got to travel the world. I got to work on just a fascinating 
projects, things that I never thought I was going to get to work on. I worked on the Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiation as my last project, which was very cool. And at the same time, I left because when you're a consultant, you can come up with lots of great ideas, but ultimately you can't implement them. And you have really no say on bringing these ideas that you're so passionate about to life. And so that felt really disjointed and ultimately really frustrating for me. You invest so much of your life force in coming up with these great ideas and then never hear about them ever again. So I left because I wanted to be able to fully implement something and own it. And the reason I came back to McKinsey was in a way I did stay true to my word. I didn't go back as a consultant. I went back to really build out a very novel, exciting arm of McKinsey. And it happened totally by accident. I was catching up with somebody and they happened to mention that McKinsey was thinking about starting this very new thing where they invest in millions of dollars in building technology. So I kind of fell into this role building out this organization for McKinsey. And to me, it was so incredibly exciting because McKinsey has so many smart people really deep in so many industries and it was really cool to think that for the first time, we can take these sparks of insight that people are having in their consulting work and build tech and products and businesses around these. And then not only that, but have access to all of these incredibly important people whereby you can implement those ideas. So that was really exciting. And, and especially around healthcare. I had come back to healthcare in consulting and had a few experiences serving big healthcare companies. And despite disavowing it in undergrad, it was really fascinating to me how important healthcare was. And yet we were just delivering healthcare so poorly and the operational gaps in delivering healthcare in this country were just, we were so far behind in the operations maturity of our healthcare organizations, it felt like compared to other industries. And as a result, people had worse quality of life and so much stress from the healthcare experiences. So I got really excited given those experiences as a consultant, I got really excited to come back and build this incubator that could build novel cool products in health in particular. So that's why I came back. Yeah, it definitely sounds like when you came back, you infused a little bit more of what you were looking for because it sounds like you do have a lot of ideas and a vision and you see problems and you want to fix them. Now in this new role, it was like, oh, you actually get a chance to now and you get a chance to build. Exactly. So it sounded like it was a good situation and something that was fruitful for you just mentally, intellectually, and also just seeing you from your healthcare projects, like you were able to really just evolve what it could look like. How did you then go from really being a lead and building this part of the practice and organization to then leaving that and now transitioning into you being your own founder and creating your own company from scratch? They are really disjointed experiences at first glance, but actually there's a very clear thread, which you called out, which is I saw a problem and I just became obsessed with how can I fix that? And so I went to McKinsey because I was really driven to find a solution. And when it ended up that I couldn't solve that problem within McKinsey, my essential energies got refocused on solving that problem in a different way. The reason why I couldn't solve it at McKinsey was the most interesting ideas for products that could make a significant impact on healthcare, I couldn't get funded. 
inside McKinsey. And the reason for that is the things that I was most interested in were also in a way threatening to the world order that exists in U.S. healthcare. And that creates a very real conflict of interest for McKinsey. And I totally understand that, right? You can't, as McKinsey, build something that solves healthcare if you're also putting one of your clients out of business. And so while I understand that imperative for McKinsey, it was just not one that I wanted to work in. And I wanted to not be constrained by the responsibility of not putting major players in healthcare out of business. If that's what happens because we have better ideas and different ways to do things, then that's what needs to happen. And so it made sense to leave that entrenched position and start my own company. So the idea from Almond came directly from that work. And essentially, the idea behind Almond and our mission at Almond is to make it easy to get great OBGYN care. The spark was, how do we create a healthcare delivery organization that is actually built to create a better experience for patients? How do we come at it from the patient first lens and build operations processes and products and services that seek to solve their need first? While it sounds like the vision for Almond came from that project work and came from that more professional experience, I'm curious, what has your OBGYN experience been like on a personal level at that time? It's so funny talking about this because it's at once so personal. And at the same time, I rarely meet somebody new these days without them telling me, here's the horrible experience I had with my OBGYN care. And thank you so much for working on this. That's one of the the pieces of magic in what we're doing. It's so personal, but it's so important that it feels really good to talk about it and share. What was happening for me at the time that I was working at, at McKinsey was I was like a 22-year-old working really hard all the time. And then I'd have a health need. And in my case, I had recurrent urinary tract infections, UTIs, which For those of you who have never had a UTI, you're very lucky and it's extremely painful and really distracting. But if you're trying to do work and dealing with this really, really painful experience, I couldn't get care. I would call my doctor and say, hi, I have a UTI. And they'd say, okay, well, we need you to come in for an annual exam first, but we're booked for four weeks. So why don't you come in in four weeks? And my answer, what do you say to that? No, I can't wait four weeks to not feel in pain. And so that was just astounding to me. So it sounded like it was this mixture of, yes, you're seeing it from more of the business infrastructure operations lens with your consulting brain on, but also at the personal level, it was just really hard to navigate as well. Exactly. And at the same time, we're also, as women entering the workforce, we see how important of a role we're playing and how women are getting more and more opportunities to thrive and to be in leadership positions. And at the same time, we can't get basic healthcare. What became clear to me at that moment was how there's this weird double standard set up where we are expected to grow and thrive. But as women, we, we're not able to take care of our basic necessities. Like what's wrong with the social order to allow that to happen? Right. It's such an important conversation to have. And you're right. It is so personal. We are talking about women's health care, but also at the same time, it's such a universal experience that we all have that we haven't had great experiences when we go to the doctor when it comes to this. 
So it's interesting that a better way of managing women's health care hasn't actually already been created yet. So that's what's wild. It's so wild. It was really interesting going out and fundraising for this company because, first of all, I couldn't understand. That's, I was where you are, what you just explained. How does this not exist? And then I went out to raise money and I immediately understood. I must have had over 180 no's from investors before we got a big yes from a big investor. And it was wild because from like a pure business standpoint, this is a perfect storm. We have a massive market. We spend over $200 billion a year on OBGYN care in the US, second only to primary care, which has primary care from a VC standpoint has gained tens of billions of dollars of investment. And not only is the market huge, but 75% of women are unhappy with their OBGYN care. So big market, huge need. And then we would meet with investors and they'd say, eh, I don't know, is that really a problem? Or, oh, one medical is going to do that. Mm-hmm. One medical is not doing this. We know. We see it. <laughs> it doesn't exist. And I think a miss on that level only happens because women really aren't at the table and making the decisions enough around what new companies get created. Eventually, we did get funding from Y Combinator, from led by an incredible partner there named Serbi Sarna, who saw the vision. And she was kind of the first major investor to come in. And subsequently, we led a great round with a number of, of incredible investors, including Tony Conrad at True Ventures and Britt Marin at Offline Ventures. And now we find ourselves in this really interesting position where we have great funding and still just so few competitors. This is really interesting, just given that, yes, you receive so much friction and so much of people not really believing in the vision at the investor level. And so when you were to go back to your consulting days, when you were at this point still a consultant or still within the McKinsey org, did you foresee that fundraising aspect or this vision would be such a hard sell because you were already in it? So you saw things so clearly of how things were broken. What was that experience like? I did not foresee how difficult that was going to be at all. I thought, so I left McKinsey in March 2020 and I did what any consultant would do. I made a project plan. I created a list of people I want to talk to. I made my PowerPoint deck. I was so confident. I went out. I was raising $2 million. That was my goal. And I went out and had a bunch of conversations. And actually, we got really close. At one point, we met some great investors who felt like got the idea. And they were like, no, don't raise $2 million. Raise $5 million. Let's do this. Let's build this. And it, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm doing what I went out and saw all of my mostly male friends from college go out and do quit their jobs, go out with a pitch deck, raise $2 million. I was like, all right, I'm doing it. And then suddenly that process just came to a halt and I didn't raise the $2 million. And so I found myself in this position of having to rethink the story that I had laid out in my head while I was still a consultant and having to find a different path. And what I ended up doing was we raised a small, like around $200,000 as a pre-seed. And my goal changed. And my goal was to prove the need and prove that we were on to a solution with $200,000, which is what we did. And, and then about a year later, we got the investment from YC. So you mentioned YC. What was that process like to become a part of it? And also, could you describe Y Combinator for anyone who is not familiar? 
Yes. Y Combinator is an accelerator. And what that means is they give money to very early stage startups. And not only that, but guidance to help those companies get started and set them up for success. And what's unique about Y Combinator is, well, first of all, they have an incredibly successful track record. They're probably the top most storied accelerator in U.S. history or globally. They've invested in Airbnb and Instacart and Dropbox and a bunch of other household names really early. And what's great about them from my perspective is they bring together a group of really smart leaders who have actually done the work of founding companies and they have a really good values aligned culture. They do what they say they're going to do and they're really genuinely focused on helping founders. So they really do their work as an accelerator very well. And the process to work with YC, you can look it up on their website, is very clear, is you submit an application. It's a written application and a one-minute video. And then if your idea is selected to interview, you do a 10-minute interview, which is very different than all other VCs. I think I've never studied for an interview as much as I prepared for the YC interview. It was actually a great process in and of itself, even if we hadn't gotten funded. It really, the pressure of needing to sell your idea very clearly, explain it clearly within 10 minutes just forces such rigor, which is just such a good example overall of how YC makes you better just by interacting with them. So you interview and then if you're selected, you join this cohort of other early stage founders and they invest $500,000 in your company and then help bring you through this educational program, which sets you up for your next steps. Before getting accepted into the cohort, what was your mindset like? Because at that point, you had perhaps pitched people, had received some no's, was finding it a little bit difficult to find investment. So what was that doing to your mindset? And was there a switch in your mind or an evolution to how you approach things or how you kept yourself going? Because I do think as a founder, it can be very discouraging because you do hear a lot of no's and rejections that are probably more than you would have expected. Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, fundamentally as a founder, for anybody who wants to be a founder, the very first thing is, you have to be able to deal with massive amounts of rejection in many different forms. Actually, I think YC says something like success is correlated to like how long you can just hang on and how long you cannot give up. And how do you do that? I think for me, it comes down to just working on something that you actually really believe in. Because if you don't really believe, how do new create companies or pieces of art or social movements get created. They get created because there's actually a need and an insight or a spark that didn't exist before or else how would something big happen? So if you fundamentally have that level of insight that you really care about, that's the fuel that keeps you going. If you don't have that, then when somebody rejects you, you're like, yeah, I I guess it's a bad idea because you don't have a foundation. And for me, with this idea. It was an obsession. I knew that we need better OBGYN care. I could have gotten 200 more no's. I was certain that those people who said no were wrong because I saw something that needed to be created. So that's what kept me going. I love that because I think that's just so important, whether you are a founder or honestly just someone moving through life of knowing what your values are, what your purpose is, 
That allows you to have in a lot of ways like a tunnel vision to just keep your eyes on the prize or that type of feeling. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that only you can bring. So when you were in YC and you touched on how supportive they are, but what were some of your major lessons or insights that you learned from your cohort or from YC in general? I think there are four big lessons. Two we touched on. One is build something people love. At the seed stage, this should be your single-minded, obsessive focus. The rest will come. But if you build something people love, that drives, that makes everything else a lot easier. And if you don't have that, you're building on nothing. And number two is never give up. The winners are, in a lot of cases, the people who find a way to persevere the most. And as I say, as a founder, you get a fresh slap in the face every day. It's just like, what's the slap in the face today? Sometimes it feels like. And then specifically for me, the third one was the power of clear, focused communication. One of the things that YC does really well in Demo Day is they strip away all the nonsense in your pitch and they force you to focus on the most important things that you need to communicate. And I think that's one of the things that makes YC also beloved by investors, I would imagine, because you, there are only the five most important things that as an investor, you really need to understand. And so stripping away the 25 things that a founder might think is important and really telling the story about the five very clearly is really important. And I think that's the kind of rigor that's good to bring to life and communication in general, perhaps. And so YC just did a great job of living that. And then fourth, I mean, for me, and especially in this journey of fighting to get recognition and support in pursuing something new in women's health, you need somebody who has, if you're really struggling against an uphill battle against fundraising, there is so much leverage that comes from bringing on somebody who can give you legitimacy. And it's just the truth. So YC ended up being more helpful for us than me getting the same amount of money, the same $500,000 from investors who had less social cachet. And so I think that's a good lesson for anybody who's struggling to raise money. Find the people who are really thought leaders in your space or who other investors look towards. And, and those, you don't need all of your investors to be those people, but find a way to bring in some of those people early on first. And by the way, those are the people who are known to be forward thinking and known to be exceptionally smart and known to be trendsetters in their space. Those are the people who actually might be most interested in your idea if you're really doing something different and interesting. And it's not just YC. We had a number of other early stage angel investors who fit that mold. So Cesar Javaharian, who's a founder of Carbon Health, he got it. He was actually one of our earliest investors, far before YC, who understood our idea because he was a builder in the space and he just helped us immeasurably in our process. Stephen Edelman, who's a founder of Modern Animal, like similarly, he just, these are really, really busy founders, but they saw something because of that experience that made them just important for us. It sounds like you had a good mixture of support from investors that are both men and women. Was there a different kind of experience or process that you experienced around, you know, this is women's healthcare? So did you receive more favor from women because they've experienced this personally? Or was there any sort of difference from that aspect? 
We didn't have a lot of success early on with female investors. And as a result, shifted away from pitching female investors. The biggest reason was that female investors just got totally inundated with women's health fundraising opportunities. And from an investor point of view, it's important to diversify their portfolio. And so for structural reasons, we could actually, we would be less interesting to a lot of female investors. So it was more of a effective strategy for us to go places where people knew enough about our market to be able to see what we were doing, but where they hadn't invested in women's health before. So in that way, we ended up having more men early on. That's actually really interesting. And I guess it also speaks to a point of where it's important to keep an open mind and maybe the angle in which you thought was the way to go isn't necessarily that and just be open to pivoting and evolving the plan. Every time, after every meeting, you need to take the 30 seconds or five minutes or 30 minutes to say, what did I learn from this and how do I implement this in my next pitch that's coming up in an hour? So you mentioned Almond and what Almond is, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to elaborate a little bit more just in terms of what your overall vision is for Almond and where you see this going. So it's very simple. We want to make it easy to get great OBGYN care for all women in the United States. We see that there are two big ways that we can make OBGYN care better. One is by making it more convenient to access. And the second is by widening the scope beyond just traditional Western medicine with a real focus on improving healthcare outcomes. There is a lot within both of those categories. So first on convenience, I mean, today it's just extraordinarily hard to get care when you need it on so many levels. First of all, it's just difficult to book. For most OBGYNs, if you want an appointment, you need to call, wait on hold, leave a voicemail, get called back tomorrow when you're on a, in a meeting, play phone tag, and then get offered a visit that's four to six weeks out. And that just, not only is it is that hard in the moment, but it also sends a message to patients, if you need help, we're not really here for you. And so people don't get care when they need it. They don't get preventative care. They don't get acute care or they go to urgent care or ERs where providers aren't specialists. So the first goal is make it convenient for people to get healthcare when they need healthcare. The second big piece is the U.S. healthcare system has a lot of strengths, obviously, but there, but there are narrow ways that we think about our healthcare that ultimately negatively impact the quality of our care. So American healthcare as an institution has made so many advancements, but at the same time, women in the U.S. have the highest maternal mortality rate across all developed countries. We have the highest maternal mortality since the 1960s, and it's growing and it's getting worse. And why does that happen? It's not one answer, but part of it is that we have a really narrow, almost elitist viewpoint when it comes to healthcare. It's that I have a problem, I should go see a doctor, because the doctor has the best, highest, most years in school, and they're going to give me the best help. In a lot of cases, that's true. If you have a prolapsed bladder, yes, you need to see an OBGYN. If you have a urinary tract infection, calling your office and having them ask you to wait five weeks to see an OBGYN is poor care. You can see a nurse practitioner or another type of care provider who can safely, quickly give you the right level of care and improve your health outcomes. So we are about opening that aperture to look beyond just doctors, but also be across different modalities of care. Western medicine is great, but it tends to be really focused on 
responding on reacting to problems instead of proactively setting the foundation for good health, use prescriptions versus really focus on diet and exercise. Both of my sisters are doctors. They both are in the last year of their medical residency right now. And when I talk to them about these things, about, for example, functional medicine and training on diet and exercise, they didn't really get that training in their medical school. And they were the first to say, yeah, why we weren't trained on that. It's not that it's weird. It's that it it makes sense. Doctors are expensive and they are trained and designed to help us. That only doctors can help us, whereas we can use other types of care providers to cover the broad spectrum of what needs to be included to build a, a, a holistic plan for a healthy life. Yeah, I love that you are taking that more 360 approach to care because I am a huge advocate for that more functional medicine approach. There isn't enough discussion around what are the other lifestyle considerations to look into. It's not just that one symptom. It's your sleep. What's your stress levels? What's your nutrition? And all of these other aspects. So that's really inspiring that you are trying to set that to be the new norm. So when someone comes into your office, what is that process like? Could you kind of sell us on what the experience is when they go to Almond? Yeah. So our primary lens when somebody comes into Almond is how can we solve your problem fast and how can we make it as delightful of an experience as it can be? Understanding that healthcare is not always delightful. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not, especially in the OBGYN content. So the process from a patient's perspective is they have a problem. They book on our website. It takes about a minute and you don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to wait on hold. You tell us why you want to come in and you can look at the calendar and choose the time that's right for you. And we'll make recommendations. So you as a patient will see the recommendations for how to get in fastest at the right level of care, but you ultimately choose. And you sign up for our membership right in that process. It's books, it's integrated into the booking process to be seamless and fast. And then you come in for your visit. It could actually be in person or over video. We're all about using video to save time commuting and parking and all of that. Let's say you you needed an ultrasound and or well woman examining yearly examined. So you came in to our office. You come to our first location on Melrose Avenue. We are set in this beautiful lush courtyard, which was a vision of my co-founder Carly. She found the spot and she was like, this is our spot. She was not willing to consider any other spot. It's a really unique courtyard on Melrose. And you walk into a space. It doesn't look like a doctor's office that you've been to before. It looks like a place you might want to curl up with a book and a latte. And somebody greets you at the front desk, offers you an apple. They're all washed. Our apples are all washed. And you wait for, I mean, if you wait, you wait very briefly and you get called back for your visit. If you need an ultrasound, if you need blood work, you can get all of that done in the office. And sometimes actually, perhaps you don't need a doctor's visit. You have a urinary tract and you have a suspected yeast infection and you just want a a test. You can just come in and self-serve a test, vaginal swab. And yeah, when your appointment's done, you walk out without having to wait in line and give your credit card or your insurance card. All of that has been handled up front. So you can just say peace and walk out the door. And then after your visit, you get a care plan delivered directly in your dashboard, which is an action-oriented set of next steps. Because there's so much that you're thinking about as a patient in the visit around, am I getting all my questions answered? There's so much thinking that's happening inside your head as the patient in the visit. And so we want to take 
the burden of having to actually also remember everything your doctor is saying off of your hand. It, if you think about it, it doesn't make sense. And every meeting that you are part of in your job, if it's an important meeting, somebody's taking notes, somebody's writing the next step and sending it around. But why doesn't that happen in a healthcare setting? Why are we, is it being left up to our memory as a patient? These recommendations will be new to us. Why is it left up to us to have to remember those next steps? So we summarize those and send those straight to you. I mean, the seamlessness of what this experience is sounds like such a dream. And we touched on this at the top of the episode, but it is just so crazy that this hasn't already existed because it just makes sense to deliver care in this way. And I will also say that I can vouch for how beautiful the location is. I've been there in the courtyard and everything. It's definitely a place where you'd want to just have coffee or bring a friend. So it is not a typical doctor's experience. Thanks. I'm so glad you feel that way. Yeah, so this is a lot about prioritizing health for other people. As a busy founder yourself, how are you prioritizing your care? Obviously, I am sure you use Almond as far as your own women's health care goes, but in terms of your own self-care, how are you creating just some more wellness and well-being into your life? Yeah, it's such an important question. I think about health in a few different ways. There's obviously physical health, but there's also spiritual and emotional health. So I can talk about different things I, I do across those. I think for physical health, it's always been a challenge for me to get physical health, just like exercise into my regimen. I've never been somebody who like had a gym membership and went four times a week. What really works the best for me is lowering the barrier to getting exercise. And what that, so what has worked the best is just setting a really like achievable bar. So I go for runs outside. I make those runs 20 minutes. And so I don't have to get into my car. There's no prep time. I can just run out of my door. And that's how I make sure that I get physical fitness. And, and I always listen to dance music while I'm running because then it's dancing also. And just in case anybody ever sees me running in West Hollywood. Spiritual health. This is just so important. It's so important I think to find an outlet to think about the different challenges that you're facing in your everyday life through, through a different lens. And one of the things that's just been so incredible for me is it's a Rumi class. So Rumi is a Persian poet who lived a very long time ago and is one of the most prolific poets of human history. And there's an incredible teacher in Los Angeles. His name is Omid and he runs his class. And it's actually one of the great gifts of COVID. This class used to be only in person. And I lived in San Francisco at the time. And I was sad all the time that I couldn't take his class. And then COVID happened. And suddenly his class became available to me, even though I wasn't in LA. And it's once a week. It's two hours. You read one poem. And then everybody in the class is responsible for interpreting that poem together. And this incredible, beautiful piece of art is made every single time. Because, I mean, obviously, Rumi was a genius and he speaks about really important truths of the human experience. And so every week the poem just magically relates to your life and was a lens for me to under, better understand and process different challenges that have come up for me. That class has made me more resilient and more creative in the ways that I think about problems. So I'm very grateful to be able to have that experience and to Omid as a teacher. And... 
I think, yeah, those are my two favorites. Yeah, I love that. And I'm for sure going to be looking into that class because it sounds like something really right up my alley. But it does actually speak to just this larger need of, yes, there's self-reflection, but then there's this aspect of actually doing it in community. And it's important from that level of dissecting and exploring what a poem could be interpreted as. But however, I can also see that sort of community aspect and that dialogue that is needed around to tie it back to women's health care around maybe certain stigmas that women face or certain challenges and just having that open community aspect is necessary in all aspects of life. A hundred percent. It's such a good observation. And in a way, it's one of these characteristically feminine superpowers that we know as women. When we have problems, we understand the inherent power of solving a problem in a community and the magic that that can bring and like a different kind of resilience compared to just solving a problem in a silo in your own head, which is all the more reason that we're excited to apply that problem solving to women's healthcare. And we talk a lot about building our roadmap together with our patient base. We're always trying to talk to our patients and understand what did they love, what could have been better to get direct feedback on a roadmap. And then in your personal life, it's exactly the same. Why solve a problem by yourself when you can harness the energy of people in, in that way? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And it sounds like right now for Almond, you have the location on Melrose, and that's where your customer base is and your clients and patients, where you're getting that feedback and getting the support. What does that roadmap then look like for the future? Because I assume you're going to scale it. Yeah, we see a need for this in the entire country. And for Almond, that would look like one day hundreds of locations nationally and, and the ability to create a brand where women, no matter where they are, there is a place where they can trust, a place where they believe this ethos is designed to meet my needs first before the needs of the insurance company, before the needs of anybody else. So now what is one piece of advice or tip that you would give to other entrepreneurs, other founders who really want to take a really big, courageous step like you did? Because I think that a lot of times people can feel really stuck in this one path that they have set out for themselves, wanting to maybe explore something else, but really feeling a lot of fear in that or unsure of how to go about even pursuing whatever that vision is. So what's that one tip that you would give to people? Great question. Just start testing. Have a goal, know what success looks like, and then create a small test and just get started. Don't need to wait for the next big skill, the next promotion, to have gotten married. Just get started. And if you have a really clear test in mind where, you know, you'll have some feedback on whether or not you're onto something, then you and that thread can be really powerful together. I love it. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming on. And really, I appreciate your time. And I've said it a couple times throughout this episode, but I really do just admire the courage that it takes to take this next step and to really try to revolutionize what the experience is like for women. So thank you for being such a builder and visionary. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. 